Hey, good morning, everybody. Glad to, oh, thank you. Uh, glad to see everybody here today, especially with the terrible weather. Um, if you live in St. Paul, I understand why you wouldn't ever want to leave your house during the winter. Um, but uh, we're glad that you're here today. My name is Joel. Uh, in case you don't know who I am, I'm one of the pastors here at Resurrection City, and uh, I just want to extend a very, uh, very hearty welcome to those of you who are visiting us today. Thanks for being here. We're very excited to see you here, and hello to everyone else, too. Um, hope you guys are having a great weekend. Um, we are in the book of Ephesians. We've been in the book of Ephesians since we launched Res City. It's, um, it's a book that has uh, been, I think, really helpful in us and how we came up with the, um, the vision and values of what we want Res City to be. Ephesians was a really influential book for us. Um, and so we decided, let's, uh, let's work our way through that book as we uh, kick off Resurrection City. So we're in chapter 2. If you can uh, turn in your Bibles or, or open your phone in your YouVersion app or whatever you use to Ephesians 2, that would be great. Um, we're in the back half of that chapter. And I think this is a really important sermon uh, for where we're at as a culture because it talks about uh, the bringing together of people. And I think that um, we're recognizing more and more as a society that this is a really important thing for us to be thinking about. And this passage has a lot to say about that, especially within the church. So I'm really excited for this passage. I think it's one of the highlights of the book of Ephesians, um, and, and I'm excited to dive into it. So um, where we've been at, um, we have kind of covered the first chapter and a half of the book of Ephesians so far. The first chapter talks about this grace for God's plan and his plan to uh, create this church for the purpose of uh, being a part of his plans to bring and unite the world and heaven and earth under the lordship of Jesus. And then we talked last week about this new life in Christ that comes uh, through God's spirit and how it makes us who are dead into people who are alive. And now we're moving into this uh, part of the book that really begins to talk about what John Stott calls the new society that gets created in Christ. And we're going to start to talk about what it actually looks like for us uh, to live within this new society that God's creating. And today we'll be talking about who makes it up and what it looks like uh, for different groups of people within this new society to live together. That's kind of the big uh, point of this book. So... Um, when we talk about this grace that God has given, last week we talked about how it's by God's grace and not our works that we are made new, that we are uh, entered into this new society. We're going to now talk about what it looks like for all these different people who doesn't matter who they are, doesn't matter what their works are, they're coming in, they're very different a lot of times, what it looks like that, for them to be together and why that's so important, okay? So we're going to hop into it, but before we do, there are some things that I need to kind of explain to you because the passage brings these things up and if you don't quite understand what's going on with these, with these three things, then you have a little bit of a hard time making sense of the passage. So we're going to do a little uh, prologue uh, before we hop into the passage and we're going to talk about these three things, like I said, circumcision, law, and the temple. Now, Israel, we talked about this a few weeks ago. If you want to go back and listen to the sermon we talked about uh, through Ephesians uh, 1, 11 to 14, we talked a little bit about Israel and their uh, being elected or set aside by God, chosen by God to be his people and be a part of his purposes to bless the world. Part of God's purpose is to redeem the world from evil. When we see them uh, get created uh, through Abraham, in the book of Genesis, we get a sense for this is what God is doing, and we see that that gets traced out all the way to the time of Jesus. But um, in order for that 
uh, to have happened, there are some distinct things that we need to talk about. And so uh, circumcision, law, and temple are three of the huge things in the history of Israel. And you can't really make sense of Israel without these things. So we're going to talk about them a little bit um, before we hop into the passage. So to make sense of them, I want you to first envision a wedding ring. So what is a wedding ring supposed to do? A wedding ring is supposed to uh, be a sign to my, myself or to others that I am set apart, I'm in covenant with my spouse, right? That's just a sign to me to remind me, it's a sign to my spouse to remind her, uh, and it's a sign to everybody else to let them know I'm in covenant with somebody else. Now circumcision is that thing for the nation of Israel. If you don't know what circumcision is, I'm not going to explain it to you today. You can ask your parents or a friend, you can whisper to them. But circumcision is this thing that gets given by God to his people to set them apart. So everybody knows that this is my people, right? It sets them apart and it reminds them that they're a part of God's uh, elected covenant people. That's the role that circumcision plays. So it's hugely important for the nation of Israel in defining who they are, okay? And that's one of the very first things that we see given to Abraham is this covenant of circumcision, okay? The second thing is the law. Now, the law does a couple of things. First of all, the law makes Israel holy and it makes them able to approach God, right? It takes us people who are not holy and, and puts some parameters in place so they're allowed to approach God and be near to God. That's going to be important as we move forward here. That's one thing that the law does. But the second thing that it does is it keeps Israel distinct from the nations around them. Again, distinctness, being uh, set apart is something that's really important as we're talking about God coming in and undoing sin and evil in the world because um, you can't have this people that are a part of that become a, a part of the sin and evil in the world, right? So think of it like a sponge. When you're cleaning something off with a sponge, you need to keep that, once that sponge gets too dirty, you can't use it anymore. It just starts to spread the dirt around, right? It actually does more harm than good. So you need to keep that sponge clean. You need the sponge to remain uh, distinct from the thing that it's cleaning. Because if it starts to just spread dirt around, it gets too dirty itself, it kind of becomes part of the problem, right? And so the, the law keeps Israel distinct from every, all the nations around them so that they can do their job. They can be a part of these purposes that God has for them to bless the world. Okay, The law helps them to do that. Now, one of the ways that it does that is it creates a barrier between Israel and the nations. Um, it keeps it so that they're separate from them in all these different ways. So, um, it makes uh, the nation of Israel distinct, but also for the rest of the world. So, there's a tension there, right? And you see this tension uh, start to play out as we move forward, um, but I want to I highlight a verse for you in, in the book of Deuteronomy that kind of plays out the tension here a little bit. It's Deuteronomy 4, 6 to 7. I don't have it on the screen. I'm just going to read it for you. Um, this is Moses talking to the nation of Israel on behalf of God. He says, Observe the law carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? So the rest of the nations are supposed to look at Israel, who has this law that allows them to be near to God, that allows them to be a wise nation, and they're supposed to see that, see that good law that's been given, see how Israel acts, and say, that's awesome. We want to worship the God that has given this nation that law. 
right? We want to, we, we are attracted to who they are as a nation because of the wisdom of this law that God has given them. But at the same time, at the same time, it keeps the nation of Israel distinct from these other nations. So you see this, this tension that kind of gets highlighted here from the law. But it has this very distinct purpose, all right? So you need to understand this about the law to understand the rest of the passage. And then the third thing that I brought up is the temple. This becomes a big part of Ephesians as we move forward. The temple becomes the place where God is actually near to his people, right? So God actually somehow mysteriously dwells in the temple, even though God is still everywhere, right? He doesn't understand what that looks like, but God himself, his presence is dwelling in the temple. And this is the way in which the nearness that the law allows for the people of Israel to be near to God is actually enacted. He's moved in. He's, he's living in a house in their city, right? The temple becomes the sign of that and a sign for all these other nations that their God lives with them. Um, one of the critiques you hear sometimes of senators is that once they get elected to Congress, they just move away and they never come back to their, they're, they're always off governing and they're doing stuff in Washington and they don't really care about the state that they're a part of. God is not that type of ruler, right? He lives with his people, even though he's busy running the universe, he still is living with his people at the same time. So it signifies, I'm near to you, I love you, even though I'm busy doing all, all this other stuff, I'm still with you. And all the rest of the nations are supposed to see that and say, that's awesome, we want to be a part of that, okay? So this is what it's supposed to look like, right? But as history moves on, as the, New Te- or the Old Testament moves on, we start to see these things that are given to Israel for these different purposes that are good start to be turned into use for purposes that they're not supposed to. Um, and so the, the, the temple becomes this place where people think, well, as long as God lives there, no matter how bad things get here, God's not going to let us go, get destroyed by another nation because this is his house. He doesn't want anyone, you know, breaking his house down, right? So they start to look at this temple as like a talisman. Or they don't have to worry about any other nation coming in and sacking their city. Um, the law starts to make them think of themselves as better uh, than anybody else. And circumcision starts to become this thing that defines the race of, gent- or of, of Jews uh, as being uh, better than the, rest, than the Gentiles. We see this. This is a, a, a New Testament scholar named N.T. Wright. He says, The covenant sign of circumcision marked out the Jews as the chosen people. Sexual relations and the begetting of offspring was appropriate for Jews within the context of that people, but not outside. We thus find in the works from the Hasmonean and Roman periods, which just is the, the period uh, right before and then leading up to the Roman period, which is the time that Jesus shows up on the scene. So in that, in that several hundred years leading up to the time where this book of Ephesians is being written, where Jesus shows up, we start to see an emphasis on race as the true people. So the nation of Israel starts to, um, starts to view themselves as better than the other races around them, which they just call Gentiles. They don't really discriminate beyond that. Just anyone who's not Jewish, anyone who's not marked out as one of the people of God through circumcision, following the law, a part of the race of Abraham, we think they kind of suck, right? They're the part of the problem in the world, and so we're better than them, so we need to stay apart from them, and we just are waiting for the day when God comes and smashes them all. That's what it looks like for most Jews in the first century. And so Paul is dealing with all this stuff when he writes the book of Ephesians. Now we can kind of empathize with this, right? Because like 
Here's the history that's leading up to it. You have Israel, but then they go into exile through these other nations because God is like, no, my temple, like I will leave that place if things get bad enough and I will let you get taken over by another nation. And that's exactly what happens. Israel goes into exile. Um, the temple actually gets destroyed and Israel's just stuck being oppressed by all these other nations around them. Babylon, Persia, Greece, finally Rome, all these nations just treat them like crap and they start to like, you know, really start to hate everybody around them, which kind of makes sense, right? Um, you think of Malcolm X, right? This is, a, this is an example, I think, of, of this playing out. Like we look at Malcolm X and some of his ideology now and we say, yeah, that is like antagonistic, violent, extreme, but you can also understand why, where someone would end up in that place if that had been the history of him and his people for so long, right? And this is what happens to the Jews. So they start to become violent and there's revolution. And they're fighting back against these other nations. And um, they really get formed in the image of the oppressors, right? They become like the ones who've done evil to them and they want to do evil back. And so this is like, this is like what... Uh, Paul is writing to. This is the people he's writing this to. The, you know, people who have gotten this grace from God in Christ um, on both sides, Jews and Gentiles, but now he's got to bring them together, right? Because God has given this gift, and we've talked about this in the book of Ephesians, to people on either side of that Jew-Gentile distinction. So to bring them together now, these two groups of people who really don't like each other, is a really big deal, and Paul has to talk to them about how this can even take place. And what about the law? Wasn't that supposed to separate the Jews and the Gentiles? Paul has to deal with all this stuff now, okay? Prologue over, we're into the movie. The movie's starting for real. There's a little history lesson for you all. Um, let's actually finally get into the passage, all right? Ephesians 2, 11 to 12, Paul says, Therefore, remember that formerly, formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. I'm going to pause right here. So, calling someone uncircumcised and calling yourself the circumcision, like, uncircumcised is like a racial slur, right? This is like something you would say like, you know, and then you'd spit after you said it, right? Like uncircumcised, gross, yuck. Can you believe those people aren't circumcised? Can you believe they're, they're, they're not Jews? Like gross, like we, we look down on them, right? But we're the circumcised, right? These become racial slurs that the nation of Israel would even use, all right? Get back in the passage. Remember that at the time that you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of the promise without hope and without God in the world. So um, what you have, and Paul is, you know, Paul is saying this is true for Gentiles, you had right, the law and circumcision, all these things that brought people near to God. Right? We talked about that in the Deuteronomy passage. Before this grace came from Christ, that was true. You were far from him. But now in Christ... You have been brought near. You have been brought near and any privilege or anything like that that the Jews might have had gets washed away, right? Um, Israel has been saying, we want to keep this to ourselves, right? We are fine being near to God and allowing you to stay far from him. But Paul is saying, no, no, you've all been brought near now. Jew and Gentile, doesn't matter through the grace of the cross, and that's what he says here in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This union that we talked about, you guys remember a few weeks ago we talked about how important the idea of union is in the book of Ephesians, right? How um, we get united to Christ and because of that, all these benefits, all these things come with it. 
Union in Christ, being in Christ Jesus, means that we get brought near to God. And Paul's going to say something else here in a little bit um, that's a little bit explosive. We'll get into that here in Ephesians 2, 14 to 16. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Jesus takes this barrier that we talked about, right? This barrier of the law, and he destroys it, Paul says. He makes it so the law is completely obsolete. It doesn't have any purpose anymore because he summed it up in himself. If you want to learn more about that, I don't have time to dig into it. Go to Galatians 3. It talks about the way in which this actually takes place. But Jesus takes the dirt of the sponge on himself in order to make it so that the law gets summed up. And when he does that, when he does that, he creates a brand new humanity. So Jesus goes into the cross, right, taking all this stuff on him and comes up the other side by making a brand new humanity. So we should have in mind the Genesis scene here, right? And the Genesis scene, if you go back to it in Genesis 2, um, you get this picture where God like bends over and he, in, he's into the dust to create his humanity. He gets his hands dirty, right? He, he, he breaks the ground. He gets a piece of that dirt, of that clay, and he picks it up, and he kind of mangles it a little bit. If you've ever made clay, you kind of get a picture of what this looks like. It, you know, you get, it's like he's building this like, little person out of clay, right? That's kind of the picture you get in Genesis 2. He molds it. He forms it into creation. He breathes life into it. That's the, how humanity gets created in the book of Genesis. This time... To make this new humanity, Paul says, instead of molding him out of clay, instead of reaching down and breaking the ground and mangling that up, Paul says that Jesus' body instead gets molded into the shape of a cross as it's nailed up there. And it gets, it gets mangled. His own body gets mangled. His body gets broken up inside of this dirt. And in the process of that happening, a whole new humanity gets created. That's what Paul is saying here. That's the import of this. And while he died, he was raised again. And the thing that actually died that day, Paul says, was not Jesus, because he was raised again. The thing that died was any hostility between people who are in Christ towards one another. That's the thing that should have died on that day and not get resurrected. And so for the people who are in Christ that are living out uh, this resurrection life, who are living out this life in the Spirit, they should be dead to any hostility towards one another. They should be dead to any sort of division towards any, any one of each other. That's what Paul is saying right here. So if anyone ever asks this question, right, and this is something that maybe gets lobbied against Christians today, and sometimes we deserve it, um, but if anyone ever asks us if God cares about the question of race relations or if he cares about unifying people groups, like, all we need to do is look at the cross, and we have a pretty good answer to that, I think, right? Like, if we're asking the question of how much God cares about uniting people, I think we can safely say he cares enough to have given his son to die on behalf of it. That's what Paul is saying in this passage. It's really powerful. And so Jesus, in doing that, Paul says, came and he preached peace to those of you who are far away and peace to those of you who are near. So pause right there. What he's saying is um, Jesus is the one who preaches peace uh, to each other and to God 
for people that were far away, but also people who were near. So what he's saying is these sayings, law, circumcision, temple, throw them all out the window. They don't matter anymore. The way that you're going to be near to God now is through Jesus. And it doesn't matter. That gift is given indiscriminately. Jew or Gentile, that has been given to either of you, not by your works. That's what the last passage we talked about is about. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. Both people have nearness to God through Jesus. Okay, Both people have the wedding ring, have the sponge, have the temple. That is in Jesus now. And Paul is, is talking about the way in which we get brought together in that process. Okay? And in doing that, he shifts from, uh, he shifts from this picture of a creation to a picture of a uh, temple. Where he talks about how uh, the household, um, right? That's, that's, that's talking about the temple. So like God's house is his temple. So whenever you hear house in the Bible, you should think temple, unless it's about a person's house. Then you shouldn't think temple. But um, when you hear temple or household applied to God, you're talking about this temple that's being built up together. Fellow citizens, one another, being built up in Christ. So we talked about how the temple was where God dwelled with his people before him, but now the temple is God's people together being pieced together. Instead of having a, a, um, instead of having a temple made out of bricks and mortar and arches and gold and all those other things. This temple's made up of different people now. Like we together make up God's temple. That's what Paul's saying this. So let me just summarize what we've said and then we'll hop into, um, we'll hop into some application, all right? So just to make it really clear, Jesus tears down any walls that divide those in him. So we're all united, no matter what our identity markers might be, right? Now we are really good at using our identity markers to plot out who we are, right? The things that make us who we are, a lot of times we, 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 we list those off to people as different things about us that make us who we are, right? Um, we assign some, some social merit based on information about us, right? Um, now, what Paul is saying and has been saying is that it doesn't, those things don't matter to God in terms of making this new society. This gift has been given to people no matter what those identity markers uh, might be. So think of it like this. Imagine that I'm really old and I, I have two kids and I'm about to die and I'm writing my will and I'm going to give them an inheritance. Um, one of these kids is like the oldest. He's like a, a typical oldest kid. He's really, you know, has a great job and he's, you know, really well accomplished and he's just awesome. Yeah. And he definitely thinks that he deserves the, the most of the inheritance because he's worked his butt off his whole life, right? And then I have this younger kid, and he's kind of a slack off, and he lived in our house for a lot of his life. But he was around a lot and helped out with different things. And he's like, I was the one that was hanging out with mom and dad all the time, and I was helping around the house, so I should get the bigger part of the inheritance. And I say, um, you know what, I'm giving you both the same exact inheritance I'm telling them that any sort of competition that they might have had between one another, I don't care about it. The wall that you put up between yourselves to divide yourselves doesn't matter to me, right? Because you're getting the same exact inheritance. That's what happens to everybody in Christ Jesus. So any walls that we put up that might uh, be there to divide us, that we might use to divide us, have no 
merit whatsoever to God. None at all, right? That's what's been happening in the book of Ephesians. God undercuts anything we would use to divide ourselves by giving the gift, the same exact gift, to anybody, no matter who they are, no matter what their identity markers might be, okay? And the second thing that Jesus does to unify people is he creates this brand new humanity or family that has been created by Christ, in Christ Jesus. Um, and this new humanity, this new creation takes precedence over the old one, right? We believe something new has actually happened. Something, you know, we're not just talking about this. We're saying, like, in Christ, all of us in this room, all of us in the world who are in Christ are part of something new that God is doing, right? And it's something that has, has entered into this old creation and unites us together, okay? That's what's happened on the cross, so we need to remember that and think about the importance of that instead of the importance of these other dividing markers that we might have, okay? So that's our first point of application. We can't look to anything other than Christ as our unifier. We might be tempted to look at some cultural expression of Christianity as the right one. We might tend to look at something that we think we do really well here at Res City, which isn't much because we're a church plant, but maybe someday we'll be really good at some things. Um, we might be tempted to look at those and say, like, we're really great. This makes us who we are. And we might be tempted to compare ourselves to other churches. Or we might look at other people within the church and think, like, you know, this makes me pretty good. Like, I look at someone else and the way that they serve in the church or something else and think that that makes me better than them or something. Or I'm a, a better uh, Christian. And we can't look at those things to unify us, right? We can't look at those things to divide us. None of those things are going to be the thing that unite us, right? Even though it might be comfortable to do that, even though it might be comfortable to find ourselves in certain uh, lanes of Christianity that we identify with more and we think the other versions are a little bit weird and we don't want to be a part of that, right? We can't, we can't do that. that. We can't do that, Paul says. Okay? John Barclay is a, is a scholar uh, on, on Paul and he talks about how Paul remains a Jew and Paul was still identifiably masculine and free. Okay? So I'm not saying, and Paul's not saying, that like, all these things that make you who you are just go out the window and we should all be the same person and we should all dress the same and have the same haircut and act the same and do these different things. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that these things don't matter anymore. What is altered, though, is the evaluative freight carried by these labels, the encoded distinctions of superiority and inferiority. He goes on to say, all forms of symbolic capital not derived from belonging to Christ now lose their ultimacy. Baptism into Christ provides a radically new foundation for communities freed from hierarchical systems of distinction, not because of some generalized commitment to equality, but because of the unconditioned gift of Christ, which undercuts all other reckoning of worth. So I think the key part of that phrase is saying all forms of symbolic capital not derived from belonging to Christ lose their ultimacy. So we don't lose our identity. We don't lose the things that make us who they are. Those things remain fundamental to who we are, and those things remain important. And we're going to talk about the ways in which they do here in a little bit. Okay? We can't forget that. I'm not saying we're all going to be the same person, but I am saying that we can't use those things to divide us within this church. Okay? This gift has been given indiscriminately to people who are Jews, Gentiles, people who are white, they're black, Korean, Hispanic, Japanese, Pakistani, Iranian, Norwegian, German, Minnesotan, Wisconsin, North Dakotans. North Dakotans get the gift of God, you guys. That's okay, right? Are you guys okay with that? All right. Male and female, right? No distinction. People who are tall and people who are short, like me, 
I wish I was taller sometimes, but I still get the gift of God. So that's a good thing, right? People who are musically talented or people who should never touch an instrument. People who are rich or people who are poor. That's a big way we divide ourselves in the society today, even if we don't realize we're doing it. People who are Democrat or Republican or Libertarian, right? Doesn't matter. No distinction. People who are old, people who are young, people who like coffee, people who don't like coffee, people who own dogs, people who don't own dogs, people who are single or married, people who are parents or are not parents, people who are healthy, people who have chronic illness. Vikings fans and Packer fans can come together over this thing. People who are college educated, people who are, uh, who are uh, just high school educated or maybe don't even have that. None of that stuff matters. People who are in prison or not, right? The same gift has been given indiscriminately. All these things that we might use to divide ourselves. Paul says those things don't matter in light of the gift of God. And so we need to come together and actually live that out, okay? Now, like I said, um, Jesus has made it so the most important part of who we are is who we are in him, recipients of God's grace, okay? But those things about us don't, that, that make us who we are don't lose their value at all, right? I'm not saying that either. Don't, don't push it to the other end. I'm saying we need to learn that there are new Christ-centered ways to live out these things that make us who we are, right? And one of the ways that we do that is my second point of application. If Jesus died to deal with, with division because of sin, because of competition or walls that we build up between ourselves, then we should put up with the hard work of making unity happen, right? Now, there's an easier, a lazy way to make unity happen that just says, cool, let's just forget anything that we've done to hurt each other in the past. Let's just, it doesn't matter, right? Let's just forget it. We'll move on, and now we're one big happy family. I don't think that's what real unity looks like either, right? If Jesus was willing to die on the cross in order to bring us together, then we should be willing to do some hard work to unite ourselves too, right? Um, I think, like, this idea of cheap grace seems appealing, but really it's just laziness or it's not wanting to deal with the real problems that have been there. And so we have to repent and we have to wrestle with our sin, right? We have to, rep- we have to understand the ways in which we do things that create barriers or we're a part of systems in the world that have divided people for centuries and we need to do the hard work of undoing that to live out what God has made true in Christ for us, right? Okay? We need to examine ourselves, we need to look at our past, we need to look at our biases, our our inclinations, our culture's history. We have to show sorrow for the ways in which we've divided ourselves in the past, right? We can't just sweep it under the rug and say, well, who cares about it anymore? We have to do that hard work, and that's not easy stuff. Um, and, And sometimes it's like uncomfortable and it goes against the grain of culture. Um, there's like a phenomenon in, in our society today called agglomeration, which means we just like to live or like around people who are like us. So you find this more and more, like uh, certain like voting districts like are, are usually made up of all people who are all into the same things and have the same skin color a lot of times and all vote the same way. And we like to be around people who are just like us, right? That's a part of the pattern of society. And in the church, we can do that too. We can get clicky. We can, get, um, we can f- gravitate towards people who have the same interests as us or something like that um, and silo ourselves off. Even within a church body this small, that can be easy to do. We can't do that, right? We can't agglomerate ourselves. Um, if you have interests, you know, if you have someone in your community group or in this church who has interests and things that you're not really into, like, take an interest in those things, 
right? If you don't like board games, but you have someone in the church who is, like, learn to play some board games and pretend you're having fun, right? That's not that hard to do. That's a really easy thing to do, actually, right? Um, If you're married, go out of your way to care for single people. I know single people can sometimes become like a, the forgotten class in churches. Like single people have been given the gift of God too. We need to remember that. Okay? We can't just be around people like us and think about the things that make us who we are. And vice versa, right? If you're single, like watch the married kids' kids or the married people's kids so they can go out and have a date or something. Like we do these different things to go out of our way. Find out the hopes and fears of, of exper- and experiences of people that don't have the same skin color as you, right? Like, it's a, it is totally different to find out what it's like to not have this color skin that you have. So go out of your way to find out what that's like, and don't just assume that people who, everyone has the same experiences as you do, because they don't. That's what it looks like for us to be willing to go out and to do this. And only when we are able to do that can we actually live out this unity that Christ has made for us, right? Christ has made it, right? He's done it, but it's our job to go and live this out. And that's the challenge for us today when, in light of this passage, okay? Our third point of application is this. Only together are we God's temple, and that means something. So um, I'm not God's temple. You're not God's temple. You're not God's temple we are God's temple. That's the way that this plays out, okay? And that's the reality that we're living in. So we need to be together and we need to understand that God is here with all of us, right? Not just, not just with me or not just with you, okay? But there's also something else about this that is awesome because we're, so I just cast this vision to you all and I already know, because I suck at it, that you guys are not gonna do this very well from day to day, Right? I'm, you know, we're going to challenge ourselves to live this way, but it's hard, right? It's against the grain, and there is grace for that too, right? And that's actually one of the awesome things about being God's temple. This quote has always just been, just ruined me whenever I read it. Um, it's, it's by the same scholar, N.T. Wright, that I talked about earlier. He, he says this, um, you are the temple of the living God, Paul says. And he's talking, and this is in 1 Corinthians, in, in two, two places in the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul tells the Corinthians that they're the, they're the temple of the living God, okay? But if you read the rest of the book of 1 Corinthians, they're like maybe the most messed up church ever, right? No matter how bad things get at Red City, they're never going to get as bad as they probably were in the church of Corinth. But don't take that as a challenge, okay? Um, so he, he tells them, you're the temple of the living God. Not to the Philippians he loves so much, not to the Thessalonians in the midst of their suffering and danger, but precisely to the recalcitrant, muddled, problem-ridden Corinthians. This is not, in other words, a sober judgment based on the noticeable holiness or gospel-inspired love or joy of this or that ecclesia, which is just the Greek word for church or gathered assembly. So he's saying Paul doesn't tell you that you're God's temple because you're, like, awesome, right? Because you just... Oh, yeah, you, look, you guys seem like you're getting along really well or you're doing all these really good gospel works. You must be God's temple. You've, you've achieved temple status. Good job, you guys. No, he doesn't say that to that group of people that you might be tempted to say that to. He says it to the Corinthians. It is simply for Paul a fact. The living God who had said he would put his name in the great house of Jerusalem has put that name upon and within these little surprise communities dotted about the world of the northeastern Mediterranean. Unless we are shocked by this, we have not seen the point, okay? So when we look at ourselves, right, and we're like, man, yeah, 
I, when I look at myself and I like, this is actually hard, or I look at my biases or my inclinations to, to set up things that divide me from other people, right? Or when we look at ourselves as a church and we think, man, we're struggling with this maybe. God has still put his name upon us. Like we still have this glory of having God's presence dwell with us. That's who we are as his temple. And that's also taking place in Christ. Okay, so we have a hope that even when we struggle to live this out, we still have the hope that God is with us and that we can challenge ourselves to live better and, and that we're not going to get the, hit, the eject button is going to get hit on us, right? That's not going to happen to us because we're God's temple. Our final point of application today, God is near to the world now through us. So we've been, remember the nation of Israel, they're the ones that get brought near to God through uh, the law, right? For the sake of other people around them. We are like Israel now. We get brought near to God through Jesus. And that like, should mean something for how we interact with the people around us. I'm not going to get into this too much because it's a, it's a big part of the next sermon. But like, if we're inheritors of a better grace than what Israel had, when the whole point of Israel was to be near to God, to bless the rest of the world, then that's our calling too. And so we have this call now, because we're near to God, to bless the rest of the world by calling them to come and also be near to God, to come and to join in this united community that Jesus has made, um, but also to bless them in how we treat them, right? By mirroring God, by reflecting God out into uh, the life of the city of St. Paul, of this neighborhood that we live in. Maybe if you don't live in this neighborhood, whatever neighborhood you do live in, you're near to God, and that should be evident to the people around you, Okay? That's what it means to be God's temple. And we, we do this by living unified, but we do it in all sorts of other ways too. So live out this reality, right? This is something that God has made true for all of us and for us as a church. But we have to now live out what has been made true for us, right? It's our job to make that, uh, to make that manifest to the world, okay? And so that's my challenge to you. We're going to enter into a, a time of communion. It's how we end every service here. Um, and, and one of the cool things about, about communion, our verse for, for communion today I want to set forth to you is comes all from 1 Corinthians. Um, go figure, right? 1 Corinthians 10, 16, and 17. Paul says this to the Corinthians. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we take a participation in the body of Christ? So if we take these things... And each of us are participating with Christ, are in union with Christ by taking the bread and the cup. Okay? If that's true, Paul says, because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. So one of the things that we signify to ourselves and to the rest of the world when we come and we partake of communion every week is that we're united together. Because we're all taken from that same loaf of bread. Okay? We're showcasing our unity to one another. So as you come forth in communion today, reflect on that. Reflect on the other people who are pulling out um, the communion bread with one another. Remember that we're united as we take from this loaf and cup together. We're reminding ourselves of what it took for, for us to be made one. Okay, The breaking of Jesus' body and the shedding of his blood, which we are partaking in as we come and take this. All right. We believe communion is a response to God in worship. And we have, we're going to enter into a time of, of worship through song where we can respond together um, in that way. But also we think giving is, a, is another way to respond to God. And so if God moves your heart to respond in worship to him through giving, we have a box in the back. And there's also information on our info cards about how you can give online if that's something you're interested in, okay? I'm going to pray. 
Um, and after I do, you are, you are welcome to come up to the front here um, and, to, and partake of, of the bread and the cup, okay? Father, we thank you that through your son you have died uh, to make us near to you, but also to make us one with one another in a unity that's not cheap, it's not um, just there for the sake of, of having it, as, as we're so often want to talk about unity today, but it's a, it's a hard-fought unity that you have made possible through the breaking of your body and the shedding of your blood, Lord. I pray that um, we would not forget what it took to unite us to one another, um, and that we would, uh, in love and in joy, live that out as a church, God. That is, that is my prayer for this church today. Um, please uh, help us to be united to one another. Um, please empower us to, to do the, the hard work of, of breaking down barriers, even small speed bumps, Lord, that might um, cause us to, uh, to, to, to not be united in the way that we're called to do, Lord. Help us to do that well in the life of our church on Sunday mornings, um, in our community groups as we go forth, and in our friendships that we have uh, with one another throughout the week, Lord. We, we pray that you would empower us to do that, Lord. We, we love you, we praise you, and we pray all this in your son's holy and beautiful name. Amen.